Section 51 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avahi in September 2020. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 51. Were there witches in Salem? 1692 by john fiske in the seventeenth century belief in witchcraft was universal between sixteen forty five and sixteen forty seven in two little counties of england more than two hundred persons were declared guilty of the crime twenty years after the days of the salem excitement a woman in england was legally convicted of being a witch it would have been strange indeed if the colonists had not believed in witchcraft the only wonder is that the number of the accused at salem was so small the editor in sixteen ninety two there were circumstances which favoured the outbreak of an epidemic of witchcraft in this ancient domain of satan there were indications that satan was beginning again to claim his own war had broken out with that papist champion louis the fourteenth and it had so far been going badly with god's people in america the shrieks of the victims at schenectady and salmon falls and fort loyal still made men's blood run cold in their veins and the great expedition against quebec had come home crestfallen with defeat evidently the devil was bestirring himself it was a witching time the fuel for an explosion was laid and it needed but a spark to fire it that spark was provided by servants and children in the household of samuel paris minister of the church at salem village a group of outlying farms from three to five miles out from the town of salem the place was sometimes called salem farms and in later times was set off as a separate township under the name of danvers any one who has ever visited a small new england village can form some idea of the looks of the place for the type is strongly characteristic and from the days of cotton mather to the introduction of railroads the changes were not great on almost any country roadside in massachusetts you may see today just such wooden houses as that in which samuel Parrish dwelt this clergyman seems to have lived for some years in the west indies engaged in commercial pursuits before he turned his attention to theology some special mercantile connection between salem and barbados seems to have brought him to salem village where he was installed as pastor in sixteen eighty nine an entry in the church records dated june eighteen of that year informs us that it was agreed and voted by general concurrence that for mr paris his encouragement and settlement in the work of the ministry amongst us we will give him sixty-six pounds for his yearly salary one-third paid in money the other two-third parts for provisions etc and mr paris to find himself firewood and mr paris to keep the ministry house in good repair and that mr paris shall also have the use of the ministry pasture and the inhabitants to keep the fence in repair and that we will keep up our contributions so long as mr paris continues in the work of the ministry among us and all productions to be good and merchantable and if it please god to bless the inhabitants we shall be willing to give more 
and to expect that if god shall diminish the estates of the people that then mr paris do abate of his salary according to proportion this arrangement was far from satisfying the new minister for it only gave him the use of the parsonage and its pasture lands whereas he was determined to get a fee simple of both another entry in the parish book says that it was voted to make over to him that real estate but this entry is not duly signed by the clerk and at the time there were parishioners who declared that it must have been put into the book by fraudulent means out of these circumstances there grew a quarrel which for utterly ruthless and truculent bitterness has scarcely been equalled even in the envenomed annals of new england parishes many people refused to pay their church rates till the meeting-house began to suffer for want of repairs and complaints were made to the county court matters were made worse by paris's coarse and arrogant manners and his excessive severity in inflicting church discipline for trivial offences by sixteen ninety one the factions into which the village was divided were ready to fly at each other's throats christian charity and loving-kindness were well-nigh forgotten it was a spectacle such as old nick must have contemplated with grim satisfaction in the household at the parsonage were two coloured servants whom paris had brought with him from the west indies the man was known as john indian the hag tituba who passed for his wife was half indian and half negro their intelligence was of a low grade but it sufficed to make them experts in palmistry fortune-telling magic second sight and incantations such lore is always attractive to children and in the winter of sixteen ninety one to ninety two quite a little circle of young girls got into the habit of meeting at the parsonage to try their hands at the black art under the tuition of the indian servants they soon learned how to go into trances talk gibberish and behave like pythonesses of the most approved sort these girls were paris's daughter elizabeth aged nine and his niece abigail williams aged eleven mary walcott and elizabeth hubbard each aged seventeen elizabeth booth and susanna sheldon each aged nineteen mary warren and sarah churchill each aged twenty conspicuous above all in the mischief that followed were two girls of wonderful adroitness and hardihood anne putnam aged twelve daughter of sergeant thomas putnam and mercy lewis aged seventeen a servant in his family this thomas putnam who had taken part in the great narragansett fight was parish clerk and belonged to an aristocratic family one of his nephews was israel putnam of revolutionary fame mistress anne putnam the sergeant's wife was a beautiful and well-educated woman of thirty but so passionate and high-strung that in her best moments she was scarcely quite sane she was deeply engaged in the village quarrels she also played an important part in supporting her daughter anne and her servant mercy lewis in some of the most shocking work of that year beside mrs putnam two other grown women one sarah vibber and a certain goody pope appeared among the sufferers but were of no great account the minister withdrew his own daughter early in the proceedings and sent her to stay with some friends in salem town the chief manager of the witchcraft business then 
were two barbarous Indians steeped to the marrow in demonolatry, the half-crazed and vindictive Mrs. Putnam, and nine girls between the ages of eleven and twenty. These girls came to be known as the afflicted children. Their proceedings began at the parsonage about Christmas time, 1691. They would get down on all fours, crawl under chairs and tables, go off into fits and speak an unintelligible jargon. All this may have been begun in sport. It would doubtless tickle them to find how well they could imitate Indian medicine, and the temptation to show off their accomplishments would be too great to be resisted. Then, if they found their elders taking the affair too seriously, if they suddenly saw themselves in danger of getting whipped for meddling with such uncanny matters, what could be more natural than for them to seek an avenue of escape by declaring that they were bewitched and could not help doing as they did? As to these first steps, the records leave us in the dark, but somewhat such, I suspect, they must have been. The next thing would be to ask them who bewitched them, and there the road to mischief was thrown open by Mr. Paris, taking the affair into his own hands with a great flourish of trumpets and making it as public as possible. Such was this man's way, as different as possible from Cotton Mather's. Physicians and clergymen, who came from all quarters to see the girls, agreed that they must be suffering from witchcraft. When commanded to point out their tormentors, they first named the Indian hag Tituba, and then Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, two forlorn old women of the village, who were not held in high esteem. On the last day of February 1692, these three were arrested, and the examinations began next day. The chief accusations against Sarah Good were that after she had spoken angrily to some neighbours, their cattle sickened and died, that she threw Mary Walcott and other children into convulsions, and that she tried to persuade Anne Putnam to sign her name in a book. It was supposed that such signatures were equivalent to a quit-claim deed surrendering the signer's soul to the devil, and his agents, the witches, were supposed to go about with that infernal autograph book soliciting signatures. Similar charges were brought against the other prisoners. In their presence the afflicted children raved and screamed. At the indignant denials of the two old white women, the violence of these paroxysms became frightful, but when Tituba confessed that she was an adept in witchcraft and had enchanted the girls, their symptoms vanished and perfect calm ensued. As the result of the examination, the three prisoners were sent to jail in Boston to await their trial. The country was now getting alarmed, and the girls began to feel their power. Their next blow was aimed at victims of far higher sort. The wretched Tituba knew human nature well enough to consult her own safety by acting as king's evidence, and in her examination she testified that four women of the village tormented the girls, Two of them were Good and Osborne, but the faces of the other two she said she could not see. After Tituba had gone to prison, the girls were urged to give up the names of these other two tormentors. At first they refused, but shortly it began to be whispered in bated breath that some of the most respected and goodly persons in the village were leagued with Satan in this horrible conspiracy. 
About the middle of March, the whole community was thunderstruck by the arrest of Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse. Of these two ladies, the former was about sixty years of age, the latter more than seventy. As they were addressed not as Mrs., but as good wife, their position was not exactly aristocratic. It was nevertheless most respectable. They were thoroughly well-bred and well-educated ladies, full of sweet courtesy and simple-hearted kindliness, like the best of farmers' wives in New England villages of today. Martha Corey was third wife of Giles Corey, a farmer eighty years old, a man of Herculean stature and strength, proud, self-willed, and conscientious, but frank and noble, with a rash, unruly tongue. He had been in many a quarrel and had made enemies. His wife, so far as we know, had not. She was a woman of deep and sincere piety, with as clear and sound a head as could be found anywhere between Cape Cod and Cape Anne. She disbelieved in witchcraft, was inclined to regard it as a mere delusion, and had no sympathy with the excitement which was beginning to turn the village topsy-turvy. She did not flock with the multitude to see the accusing girls, but she reproved her more credulous husband for giving heed to such tomfoolery, and he, with that uncurbed tongue of his, was heard to utter indiscreet jests about his good wife's scepticism. It was probably this that caused her to be selected as a victim. Skeptics must be made to feel the danger of impugning the authority of the accusers and the truth of their tales. Accordingly, Martha Corey, accused by little Anne Putnam, was soon in jail awaiting trial. The next was Rebecca Nurse. She was one of three sisters, daughters of William Town of Yarmouth in England. Her two sisters, who were arrested soon after her, were Mary Eastie and Sarah Cloys. With their husbands they were all persons held in high esteem, but an ancient village feud had left a grudge against them in some revengeful bosoms. Half a century before there had been a fierce dispute between parties from Salem and from Topsfield, who had settled in the border region between the two townships. The dispute related to the possession of certain lots of land, it had grown more and more complicated, and it had engendered hard feelings between the Putnams on one side and the Easties and Towns on the other. Besides this, Rebecca Nurse and her husband had become obnoxious to the Putnams and to the Reverend Mr. Paris from reasons connected with the church dispute. There was evidently a method in the madness of the accusing girls. Rebecca Nurse was arrested two days after the committal of Martha Corey. The appearance of this venerable and venerated lady before the magistrates caused most profound sensation. Her numerous children and grandchildren stood high in public esteem. Her husband was one of the most honoured persons in the community, herself a model of every virtue. As she stood there, delicate and fragile in figure, with those honest eyes that looked one full in the face, that soft grey hair and dainty white muslin kerchief, one marvels what fiend can have possessed those young girls that they did not shamefastly hold their peace. In the intervals of question and answer they went into fits as usual. When the magistrate Hathorne became visibly affected by the lady's clear and straightforward answers, the relentless Mrs. Putnam broke out with a violence dreadful to behold. Did you not bring the black man with you? 
Did you not bid me tempt God and die? How oft have you eaten and drunk your own damnation? At this outburst, like the horrible snarl of a lioness, the poor old lady raised her hands toward heaven and cried, O Lord, help me! Whereupon all the afflicted girls were grievously vexed. Hathorne thought that their spasms were caused by a mysterious influence emanating from goodwife nurse's lifted hands, and so his heart was hardened toward her. Mary Walcott cried out that the prisoner was biting her, and then showed marks of teeth upon her wrist. Thus the abominable scene went on till Rebecca Nurse was remanded to jail to await her trial. That was on a Thursday morning. The Reverend Diodat Lawson, a fine scholar and powerful preacher, had arrived in the village a few days before, and it was known that he was to preach the afternoon sermon familiar in those days as the Thursday lecture. He had scarcely arrived when two or three of the girls called upon him and drove him nearly out of his wits with their performances. Their victory over him was complete, and the result was seen in that Thursday lecture, which was afterwards printed and is a literary production of great intensity and power. The arrests of Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse had destroyed all confidence, everybody distrusted his neighbour, and that impassioned sermon goaded the whole community to madness. If the devil could use such gospel women for his instruments, what safety was there for anybody? Arrests went on with increasing rapidity during the spring and summer, until at least 126 persons, of whom we know the names and something of the family history, were lodged in jail, and these names do not exhaust the number. Among them, to mention only such as were executed, we may note that John Proctor and the venerable George Jacobs had each had one of the accusing girls in his family as a domestic servant, and in both cases personal malice was visibly at work. In the case of George Jacobs, it may also be observed that his own granddaughter, to save her own life, confessed herself a witch and testified against him. Afterward, she confessed this horrible wickedness. Some, such as Susanna Martin, seem to have owed their fate to mere superstition of the lowest sort. On a rainy day, she walked over a good bit of country road without getting her hose or skirts muddy, and it was sagely concluded that such neatness could only have been attained through the aid of the devil. She was mother of the Mabel Martin, about whom Whittier wrote his beautiful poem, The Witch's Daughter. John Willard incurred his doom for having said it was the accusing girls who were the real witches worthy of the gallows, and John Proctor, in a similar spirit, had said that by the judicious application of a cudgel he could effect a prompt and thorough cure for all the little hussies. People who ventured such remarks took their lives in their hands. After nineteen persons had been hanged and one pressed to death under heavy weights, the frenzy abated. Some high-spirited persons in Andover, on being accused of witchcraft, retorted by bringing an action for defamation of character, with heavy damages. This marked the end of the panic, and from that time people began to be quick in throwing off the whole witchcraft delusion. We may suppose that the minister's West Indian servants began by talking Indian medicine and teaching its tricks to his daughter and niece, 
then the girls of their acquaintance would naturally become interested and would seek to relieve the monotony of the winter evenings by taking part in the performances their first motives are most likely to have been playful but there was probably a half-shuddering sense of wickedness a slight aroma of brimstone about the affair which may have made it the more attractive i feel sure that sooner or later some of those girls would find themselves losing control over their spasms and thus getting more than they had bargained for would deem themselves bewitched by tituba and john indian but especially if they found themselves taken to task by their parents the dread of punishment perhaps of church discipline wherein paris was notably severe would be sure to make them blame the indians in order to screen themselves if cotton mather's methods had now been followed the affair would have been hushed and the girls isolated from each other would have been subjected to quiet and soothing treatment and thus no doubt it would all have ended but when paris made the affair as public as possible when learned doctors of divinity and medicine came and watched those girls and declared them bewitched what more was needed to convince their young minds that they were really in that dreadful plight such a belief must of course have added to their hysterical condition naturally they accused tituba and as for the two old women good and osborne very likely some of the girls may really have been afraid of them as evil-eyed or otherwise uncanny for the rest of the story a guiding influence is needed and i think we may find it in mrs putnam she was one of the cars of salisbury a family which for several generations had been known as extremely nervous and excitable there had been cases of insanity among her near relatives the deaths of some of her own children and of a beloved sister with other distressing events had clouded her mind she had once been the most sparkling and brilliant of women but was sinking into melancholia at the time when the first stories of witchcraft came from the parsonage and she learned that her little daughter anne a precocious and imaginative child was one of the afflicted mrs putnam and her husband were both firm believers in witchcraft i do not think it strange that her diseased mind should have conjured up horrible fancies about goodwife nurse member of a family which she probably hated all the more bitterly for the high esteem in which it was generally held mrs putnam fell into violent hysterical fits like her daughter and their bright and active servant mercy lewis was afflicted likewise these three with the minister's niece abigail williams and her friend mary walcott were the most aggressive and driving agents in the whole tragedy i presume mrs putnam may have exercised something like what it is now fashionable to call hypnotic influence over the young girls she honestly believed that witches were hurting them all and she naturally suspected foes rather than friends i see no good reason for doubting that she fully believed her own ghost stories or that the children believed theirs in their exalted state of mind they could not distinguish between what they really saw and what they vividly fancied it was analogous to what often occurs in delirium such an explanation of the witchcraft in salem village accounts for the facts much better than any such violent supposition as that of conscious conspiracy our fit attitude of mind toward it is pity for all concerned 
yet the feelings of horror and disgust are quite legitimate for the course of the affair was practically the same as if it had been shaped by deliberate and conscious malice it is on the whole the most gruesome episode in american history and it sheds back a lurid light upon the long tale of witchcraft in the past few instances of the delusion have attracted so much attention as this at salem and few have had the details so fully and minutely preserved it was the last witch epidemic recorded in the history of fully civilized nations end of section fifty one